why don't you maybe, you don't have to give the details of who, but what would you consider to be your greatest work? The stuff that you're genuinely proudest of? Uh, you can go, Johan, while I'm trying to fi- figure out. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I think the work I do with every client is great work because it's waking them up to who they truly are. And um, when people wake up to who they truly are, then everything changes for them and the people around them, and especially the people working for them. So getting people to step into their true power, that's that's just great work. So it's a, it's a, it's great to be able to do that every day, several times a day. And I think that um, my greatest work, that's it really. I mean, the greatest thing I do, I do a lot of things in my work, but the greatest thing I do, I think ultimately, and that's not what people come to me for. People come to me obviously to fix business problems but uh, I think the greatest thing I do for them is really to get them to realize who they truly are and to start empowering that side okay. of them rather than empowering. Fabulous. Fabricating. Yeah, I think, um, I think along those lines, Johan, you used the word uh, empower. And I think there's a point where when you've, you know, after a period of time working with someone and they reach this set uh, point of separation where they're going on their way and you've empowered them. Not that they're ever reliant on you, but that you've empowered them and you see them taking the new lessons they've learned to go on. That's, that's the moment. I think uh, for me, there's a lot of um, young people, young people who come to me or have come to me for advice. and those relationships ironically are the ones that I probably treasure the most. I was just thinking about this morning. Somebody else had asked me, I don't get me wrong. Love working with paying clients and all of that. There's about five or six. Now that I think of it, I was thinking about this morning, there's five or six young people who've come through who reached out randomly. Hey, Mr. Conley. So wondering if I could ask you a question. We're still talking three or four years later and they've gone on to good roles. Those actually are probably the things that uh, I enjoy the most. But they don't don't pay bills, though. <laughs> that's the only thing. <laughs> so, it's a, so it's a balance. But, that's, but that, that thing I really enjoy, that I really, really enjoy. I, I get on both counts. I mean, for me, the best things have been when my clients have come back and said how they've taught their kids and their kids have used it to diffuse things, situations like bullying. That was an absolute high point. And the other one is where my clients have behaved so well out in the market that people have been inspired to contact me to get help. That means that I've done my job. They're independent of me, but the the values, the ethos, all of that is then being propagated. And the best thing is they're improving it. When I do speak to them, they're normally giving me stuff that makes me elevate. So it's a brilliant uh, cycle. Tell me about this, um, a victory you wouldn't want to repeat. Some of those go uh, I, on my career, really. Go on, go on, focus your time. To start. Sorry, I was, I, was going to, I was going to jump on the grenade since I, since I made you go first the last time. I was trying to be a gentleman about it. I think there were a lot of victories in my career that I got too soon, too quickly, early on. In, in some respects, I got good at certain things, very good, and made fast progress in different roles and different things. 
but in hindsight, it was at the expense of other things, you know, around or not having the breadth of the awareness. And so I think, I think there were a lot of things like that, but thankfully it's a blessing. And of course, somebody once, this is a 20 years ago, guy from Australia came over to visit me to learn. And when he went back, somebody asked him, you know, how'd you get on with Fergus? And he said, oh, he's a polymath. I didn't know what a polymath was. And I realized, and, and I, but I realized afterwards, that's a kind of a, a blessing and, and a disguise, not that I consider myself one, but, but if you've got a breath of interest, you have ability to adapt. And so I think that's what, sa- that's what saved those, you know, very fast victories. And I think that's important. I think it's, I think it's an important skill for, I think we specialize kids. I know we talk about in sport all the time, specialize too soon, but I think, I think even in life and I see it in every field, professionally specialized way, like, and people are brilliant, but then when something happens and they have to adapt, they are lost. And that causes in an extreme case, almost PTSD for them. I don't. I don't know if you can. I don't know if you agree. Agree with that, you uh, absolutely. I mean, if if someone's used to uh, performing at a certain level, or they expect that they perform at a certain level, when they realise they're shit at it, uh, or that they're doing it all wrong, or whatever, that can be a horrifying uh, realization. Yeah, me as a parent, I'm <laughs> coming to that realization on a day to day basis, and you've got a self concept that is built from your filters, your beliefs, your biases, all of that shit. And somewhere along the line, it's really helpful to get an external perspective and a a wake-up call. Because I think um, the people that you are closest to, you won't necessarily listen to. And where you have high levels of attachment, and that's always my undoing. I mean, work, I I can detach really easily. Home, I find it so difficult. And so I, I've become I've become everything that I didn't want to be. Become your parents? Yeah, I, I, I've just turned into, I, I've turned into the father that I didn't want to become because I vowed I would never become him. Well, this but, is what we resist persists. You know, and that's, yeah. that's very important okay. to understand these things. I I saw a, a quote not that long ago, and I, I thought it was a good one around leadership it says becoming a leader is about developing oneself being a leader is about developing other people and people are put in leadership positions without having developed themselves many parents most parents for that matter and therefore then they're passing on all those things you talked about um onto the next generation and getting into all sorts of trouble because frankly uh, those behaviors don't obey the rules of good leadership yeah so we find ourselves in all sorts of pickles and it's very difficult when it's so close to home. We don't have that mental gap to be able to pause because circumstance arises and then we have a knee-jerk reaction, which is instilled through conditioning, through repeating what was done to us in all sorts of different ways through early, early conditioning. We don't have that gap. So one of the first things I teach my clients through all sorts of different exercises and depending on the level of awareness already and the level of receptivity, it will be simple things like um, writing down all the streams of consciousness for half an hour a day to deep meditation or other focus exercises with the sole purpose of creating, uh, helping them become uh, rapid learners, meaning that they can be talking about what you talked about earlier on, focus at the adaptability, that they have that gap, that mental gap that when something happens, they don't immediately go to their default conditioning. They can take a pause and their training can kick in or they can choose other 
ways forward. So that gap is is absolutely key. Many people don't have that gap. Mm, it's something yeah, happens and they get hooked. Instant knee-jerk reaction. The very first stage in leadership, any leadership training I do is let's focus on leading yourself first before you worry about leading right. anybody. Actually, and actually, and actually, I don't, I, I've got the stage now where I, where I don't consider that leadership training. That's at the end of development, you know, being able to lead yourself because people who want to become leaders assume that, okay, you know, what do I need to do? Well, actually, we need to go back a, a stage and look at and how you lead yourself. But one of the things that, that you touch on is something that I feel, I feel quite passionate about when we talk about education, to me, true education is teaching someone, not the subject, it's teaching someone how to learn about that subject and how someone can teach themselves. And that's, and again, and that feeds back into the idea of empowerment. Like, I mean, if I can, if I um, am a good teacher, I'll teach you how to teach yourself about the subject. And part of that will be inspiration and motivation, all of that. But you then, you can let them go and they can explore it and learn and lead themselves on that journey rather than just teaching them X, Y, and Z. Well, that's so that's fun. Yeah. On that happy note, let me introduce you both uh, to the audience because, uh, frankly, we're just going to uh, go from the, uh, the top anyway. Just a cunning way of getting you comfy. Um, so my guest today are Johan Taft, who has been a client of mine for a dozen years longer. It, just, it, it might feel longer for Johan. And he is a return guest. He's one of the best coaches I've ever come across. His results are exemplary and they are startling. You know, taking someone who's late in their career in gymnastics, win gold at the European, Olymp uh, European Championships, retire and then come back at the age of 32, was it? Something insane and win gold again. You don't get someone there just by physical conditioning. It's by getting their head in the right place. And Fergus Connolly, who has become one of my new best friends, recently introduced to him, thank God, can't remember who, I think it was uh, Donald. Donald, um, Donald. Yeah, yeah. Donald, um, you are a gem. Keep them coming. More like this. Fergus coaches top performers, so uh, special forces, top sports people, top business people. And we had a fantastic conversation a, a month ago. And I thought, bring these two together and we can really pickle what it takes to become more self-aware, uh, be more compassionate to oneself and do the things that you said that you would so that people, including yourself, know that you can de be depended on. So gentlemen, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for, thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Uh, Johan, would you mind just reminding people in 60 seconds, keep it brief this time uh, in terms of your uh, career, because again, to build on Fergus's uh, earlier point, having that range and having that exposure, travel, international, many jobs, difficult uh, challenges, working with many different people, Johan's got that in spades as well. So I'd love you just to do a whistle-stop tour of that. And then Fergus, if you could follow well, I grew up in an international family. Father's English, mother's Swedish. Grew up in Belgium. So all my education and early life up till 19 was in French. Then I moved to the States. Early age, I was in the Navy. That's where I got a lot of my early leadership training and my um, mentors, powerful people that I learned from, especially in the Navy. 
also martial arts, practiced martial arts as a kid, so I had some good role models there. And uh, in my early 20s, got into the fast food industry by accident, if you could say, although I understand now there are no accidents, but uh, got into the fast food industry in the States and um, was able to take those leadership levels to the next, uh, those leadership skills to the next level and had a very successful 12-year career in the fast food industry. Then got out, got into other businesses, still as an employee, and then one day decided to set up my own little consultancy, get parachuted into companies, help them fix their uh, management structures and their operations, and it just grew from there. And now I work solely with owners or leaders of uh, companies of different sizes, but the one thing all my clients have in common is they're already technically good at what they do and what they're uh, looking to improve upon is the whole business and performance side for themselves and the people working for them. That's me in a nutshell. Excellent. Thank you. Fergus? Not quite as diverse as, as, as Johan's, but <laughs> pretty close. I start off by saying I'm Irish, grew up in Ireland. Accent might have been a giveaway. Johan, you would hit your... The name might have done it as well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Johan hides his, his, uh, his accent better. Started out actually as a woodwork teacher, did a master's in manufacturing and then a PhD in IT, but then started working in professional sport pretty much late 20s. Straight into the Premier League, I was fortunate, skipped a lot of rungs, worked in soccer, international rugby, NFL, college, some work with the military as well. And, uh, and now I coach, yeah, leaders mostly in tech. And uh, Johan said something that rings very true, being parachuted in to help people solve problems. And that, I, I'd be interested to talk to you on about that because that's a blessing and a, and a curse in some ways because you get really good at solving or helping people solve a lot of, a, a lot of problems. And so then your breadth and your range and your ability is actually quite right, wide and sometimes then it's hard to, to narrow it down. One thing that, that I think... I found in my career was I've always worked, I have coached one or two boxers, but the other 98% has always been in a team environment. So working with teams. However, when you work with teams, you very quickly realize you have to, I call it treat the person, not the player. So you have to go to the individual and then come back. Like you start with the team. Then you go to the individual and then you come back to the team. So it always, it always, always ends up being the person. Well, you know? I think you're absolutely right there. And I always tell, I, I ask business leaders, who's building your business? What's building your business? And we come to the conclusion that it's their mind. And if the mind isn't sharp, the mind isn't switched on, the mind isn't present, the mind isn't energized, how can it possibly build a bigger business or build a better business? So it's all it, a business, the results of a business or a sports team or an individual is the sum total of what those minds are up to. And that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in, you know, when I was a kid uh, back in Belgium in the summertime, we'd help farmers. It was a tradition then. I don't think they do it anymore, but we used to help farmers, especially with um, hay, you know, harvesting the hay. And so they needed all hands on deck. And my brother and I go there to get strong because by the end of the summer, lifting all that hay, you get strong. Mm -hmm. So we saw it as that was what was in it for us. It was hell. I mean, the itching. You know, you'd be sweating. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But we'd, yeah, we'd <laughs> survive it just to get strong. And we did get... And um, the farmer we worked for, his name was Johannes. And there was another farm just down the road from him. Same size farm. They actually were exact 
from the same age within months, went to the same agricultural, went to the same primary school, secondary school together from the same little village in the middle of nowhere in, in the Flemish countryside, went to the same agricultural college, had the same size farm, almost the same amount of cattle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the farmers, the one we didn't work with, was a miserable son of a man. I mean, and his cattle seemed upset. The dogs were miserable and angry, and it was just not nice to go there. The other guy was almost fun, you could say, but very positive. <laughs> And on top of things, and yeah, you know, the wheat grew faster, and the corn was bigger, and everything was better. And and his wife was happier, and his wife was a phenomenal support. The other guy was in the bad marriage. And I wondered, I used to wonder, same age, went to the same school, exact same education. The miserable guy actually got better scores than the other guy at school. Yet his farm is not very successful, and um, and it's a miserable place, and no one wants to help him. This is the Jimmy Carr rule. Okay, go if on. you eat three twats by 12 o'clock, you're the twat. Don't be a twat. He said it, <laughs> the less polite version of that. Of but course he did. If you turn up and you're not humane and human and compassionate, you're going to bring the wrong intent. And yeah. a lot of what we're talking about, I think, really comes back down to this foundational stuff. And I was um, chatting to, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't remember who it was. And he said that, um, you know, is a culture on people's standing agendas for leadership and management meetings? And more often than not, it isn't. It doesn't even uh, show at all, unless it's a crisis, in which case we're probably firing someone. That's not good leadership or good management. So let, let me ask you this. You've got, you've got someone who clearly knows that they have to change, but they're resisting. For some reason, they find that they're in, they, they've hit a block. Because I, I come across this a lot. I am one of those. Uh, so maybe this will be a bit of therapy too. How do you help them recognize why staying stuck isn't the best option for them and uh, help them find the motivation to change? Fergus, let's start with you. Yeah, just to touch on one thing you said. So I, I, coined, I coined the term. I used the term positive positivist to describe mm -hmm. what Johan spoke about. Now, somebody, there probably is a better word. I just came up with that word because I don't like the term realist because I think that can be taken either way. Optimist is Pollyanna and everything's okay. That is never a good thing. And you, nobody wants to be a pessimist. To me, a positive, positivist is someone who, no matter what the situation, is determined to find a positive outcome. It's different than an optimist. Oh, yeah. No, okay. I have the same and, thing. I don't call it that, but People ask me, oh, Johan, are you an optimist? I said, you don't want to be an optimist. You don't want to be pessimist. Yes. What I tell them, which is exactly, is I say, you want to be a realist who brings positive energy to everything. And for that, you need, your batteries need to be full. Are you filled yes. with batteries? Yeah. yeah. So, but I, I, I've but seen... I like positivist. Great term. But I might use yeah. that. I might, I might steal that one from <laughs> you. But I think what you're referring to Marcus is like when, when you see um, we, we love familiarity because familiarity means security because it's what we are most familiar with. We know and we know as humans, we associate security with familiarity, with predictability. We know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah, so even if, it, even if it's wrong, that's the direction we're going to go because we know and we've developed the skills. And I think that does go back to something we touched on earlier as well as embracing uncertainty and embracing fear as a learning 
moment. And so I think is there's two things is one helping people understand where how their frame of mind is going to lead them to negative consequences, but it has to be done in tandem with, we're going to take a different uncertain route that is going to lead to a better, a better outcome. But if you go into it with a sledgehammer and try and beat people into a different direction, they're going to resist against it. And you're just going to end up banging your head against the wall. So you, you have to do exactly like you did in the green room, make people comfortable, understand where they're coming from, and then help them see that there is another, another route. But you can't, you can't come up against it with a sledgehammer. I think it's also really important that you're clear about establishing what their permissions and their rights are. And this is where so many leaders and managers fall foul because ambiguity is the mother of all foobars. It leads to mismatched expectation, to disappointment. And normally what happens is the poor sucker at the bottom of the pile gets crapped on because the guy at the top says, well, I expected you to do this. And the response is, well, I thought you meant that. And you get fired for doing what you thought you were meant to do because the manager or the leader was ambiguous. So, Johan, back to you. Same question then. In terms of helping somebody overcome their own internal resistance and procrastination, because this is a bugger. Procrastination is a choice. You would prefer to watch the kitten videos than make your dial. That's the grim reality of it. And you make that decision. And you're willing to take the short-term payoff and not care so much about the long-term pay. So help me understand how you help your clients deal with this. Okay, well, first of all, I disagree. Procrastination isn't a choice, it's a conditioning. People don't have a choice when they procrastinate. If they did, they wouldn't. In other words, it's doing them, they're not doing it. And you want to get into a position where they start to do things. So they've lost their power. They've got to restore their power. Not Just let choice. me clarify. Choice is freedom. Freedom of thinking is choice. They don't have freedom of thinking. It's doing them. Right. So they lose their agency by giving up the freedom to think. Yes, they have no self-sovereignty. They've given that up or they don't even... Re- they, it's been they, a long they time. They don't realize it. They don't realize it. So you've got to wake them up to that. And um, what I find is I've got to fight with clients. I mean, clients usually come to me because they're in pain. They've been referred. But not everyone who comes to me is going to do it because they're confronted. They're definitely confronted and all those things, procrastination, um, not making a decision, not want, wanting to pay for stuff, whatever, whatever, all those things will come up magnified when they're confronted with actually taking action. And when they're going to work with me, they're definitely going to take a lot of action. So I've got to find <laughs> something in them, even the grain. I'm too cowardly to take you out of my coach. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all with permission. You're quite right. All the permissions. And all the, there's all way too much in work involved. <laughs> and Sorry, sometimes okay. non-action is the action though sometimes non-action you've got to quiet down and, and shut the duck up and sit quietly but that's and even the non-action is in a way an action but the point is they've got to want it more than I want it and to get to that place might take something and so we've got to find and might take some digging and some hunting for it but we've got to find that motivation that deep motivation that the part of them that isn't contaminated are we looking for signals and signs of resignation then? Well, the resignation would already be there, but we've got to dig and dig. And why? And people come to me and say, Johan, I want your help. For what? what do you, why do you need my help? Well, I, I want to, my business isn't running right. Why is it not running right? And I'm following a lot of your training there, Marcus. Why, 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 why? Mm-hmm. Right? And the point is, we get to a point where they start to realize it's them and they don't like it. 
they were hoping that I'd wave a magic wand and fix someone else in their business. Actually, it's the focus is, is, is maybe on their leadership style and they might not want to confront that because it's too uncomfortable. So then we've got to look at what is, is the cost of that discomfort and what do they stand to gain? And if the cost is larger than the gain in their mind, they're not going to do it. But if the gain is bigger than the cost and the price to pay, they will do it. So, and that could be all sorts of obscure things sometimes. The true, what is the motivation that is going to actually get them to take action? All I need them to do is to step in. Once they've stepped in, we'll take it from there. But they've got to step in. That's all that I need them to do. So again, that once they've stepped in, they'll step out again. Go on. How often do you find that customers or prospects come to you to ask for validation instead of because they actually want to enjoy transformation and improved outcomes? Yeah, yeah. They like the idea of it, but they're not a committed. Probably a third of them. And that pretty much is out the window 15 minutes in the conversation. They'll give that one up pretty quick. I'm prepared to walk away. I mean, I've, I've had people referred. Nowadays, I work usually with an owner or a boss, someone who, who controls them the person certainly controls that budget or someone who might be working for someone like that, but is already pre-enrolled, if you like, pre-motivated to come and get help. But I've had people come to see me, their bosses sent them to see me. I mean, high president level people in the company, or vice president in that case, sent to see me. And the minute they sit down, their body language is telling me they don't want to be there. So I said, tell me that I'm wrong, but I'm getting the feeling you don't want to be here. And they go, well, um, I said, your boss sent you here, right? Yeah. You didn't really want to be here. You want to be someone else. Well, not quite that. Well, how then? I confront it. They say, okay, yeah, I, my boss thinks I need his help, but I don't think I do. So, well, that's fair. You probably don't then. Tell me something. What did your boss think you needed? And they tell me, I said, well, you're good with all that. 10 out of 10 on all those. Well, not quite a 10 out of 10. Well, which one do you think is the strongest? Which one? I start picking it apart. Then I say, put all that aside because that's your bosses. What do you think then? Now, 10 minutes in the conversation, they start to see how I work and I'm starting to break this kind of big barrier of super confidence, manufactured super confidence, and starting to crack. And then and I get we start to get personal. And I said, listen, we can leave right now. I'm happy to go home and, and finish my breakfast at home. It's early morning. I don't like getting up early in the morning for these meetings, frankly. Um, I'm happy to go home or we can carry on your choice. They say, well, I'm enjoying it so far. Let's get another coffee and ask me some more questions. And bang, I'm in. You've got to interrupt those patterns a little bit because people are stuck in, in a particular way of operating. The, the, other, the other thing there, though, is you haven't actually told them anything. Nothing at all. You've opened the door for them to tell, to tell you. Yeah, and to then ask yeah. me if they want to. Yeah, by going through the whys, you're taking away their comfort blanket. And to be fair to some of them, they're not aware of it either in some cases. They're not aware of why they're refusing the help or, or what the reasoning is. Yeah, they're usually not. So, tell me this then. They end up being aware, but they're usually not. They're quite <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell me this then. When someone surrenders to the process and they feel comfortable with you, how is that different to when they've come prepared and you know it's the, they've got that sort of that, um, mission zeal about them how is their experience and the kind of outcomes early outcomes and then long-term outcomes different when you say mission zeal what do you mean they already know what they want and they just yeah they, well they, they come to me say, Johan, i've heard you're a great coach heard great things really want to take my business to the next level and they're, they're all you know hypey and pumpy 
But the reality is it's not growing that fast and it's not as good as it could be. The fact is I'm like a police detective. I don't believe a thing anyone is saying and I'm looking to validate everything they say. I don't. I start by I don't believe a word they're saying because if I did, they wouldn't be sitting in front of me because if their actions, their thoughts and their speech were all aligned, they wouldn't be sitting in front of me. That's a fact. So I have to take everything they say with a pinch of salt. So if they come to me and say, Johan, you're the best thing since sliced bread, I say, well, thank nice. If you just say, I can't be that good though. Surely there's people better than me out there. I tested it a little bit. I said, you haven't gone, you haven't spoken to many people that, that do what I do, have you? I test, see what they say, shake them a little bit. They come with all this. They're looking to ooze me or to charm me or whatever it is. Let's start breaking that right now. now let's start getting to some authenticity. And I can only really help people if they're willing to be authentic. They don't know they're inauthentic. So we got to sometimes mirror that back to them in a nice way. But it's only when they start getting authentic. In other words, vulnerable, they're willing to share their vulnerabilities. And that can only happen in an environment of trust. So I might be sounding like right now, like I'm going in there tough and everything. But it's all done in an environment of trust. Because before we have those conversations, I would have prepared a little bit of, I, I give them a, all the things you taught me, Marcus. I give them a way out. Yeah. Okay, so you, you create the platform for safety. I create the platform for safety. Usually, not always. I mean, sometimes you don't have the opportunity, but okay. I'm not going to sit there for an hour or two with okay. someone who, who's going to fight me and resist me for an well, hour or two. But Let's let me bring Fergus in. So, Fergus, again, how do you create that place of safety? Because coaching is a very, very intimate place. It's uh, you know, For someone to be a great coach, they have to be able to create the conditions where someone can be absolutely trusting knowing that the coach is there with love and has only their best interests at heart. They're not there to serve themselves. They're not there to become the hero. How do you make sure that somebody feels that safety? The foundation has to be honesty on both sides, you with them. And so you're getting, you're stripping away to that honesty. And in some cases, well, in all cases, we, we always lie to ourselves. And so it takes takes a little bit of questioning. Again, I call it like, um, I describe it as beating someone up with marshmallows. Like you're battering them, but in a in a loving way. I'll use the word love because you do. You care for, you yeah. want them. So you, you really batter them with marshmallows. But you're, again, breaking that down until you get to a level of honesty. And um, as Johan says, you, you question them until you get to that level. And the other thing too, so smiling as much as talk, or as you were asking the question about people who come willing to, the danger there is that people think you're going to do the work for them or that you're going, that you have the solution. That's usually, sometimes people come and it's not that you're the last resort, but they've, they've had a really difficult failure or struggle and they know that they need to do something they may think they need to do this or they may not know, or they, in some cases they know, but they just don't know how to do it. And so that's one way that they'll come, that they'll come to you. And so you have in that instance, you can get to that level of honesty quicker and then start to rebuild. And the one thing that you have to be careful with sometimes is that some great leaders, brilliant leaders being incredibly successful. So when you do this and you strip them away, it can actually be almost demoralizing to them. So you have to remind them, look, all we're doing here is taking the pieces of a beautiful puzzle and we're just putting them back together in a better way. But you have all the pieces here. We're just putting them together in the right way. You've forced a few in here, but you have all the pieces. So it, it, 
you know, you have everything because that's really important. You can't lose the, you can't, you can't batter them with marshmallows to death and leave them, <laughs> leave them on the floor broken. I, I think in parallel with that, uh, it's also really important in my experience to try and understand what that inner voice sounds like. Because that inner dialogue or the inner monologue, the nagging parent, how critical is it? Because um, what, what I'm starting to realize is that instead of being my own best friend, my inner dialogue over the last couple of years has become more self-critical. Now, it's quite jovial, but it's, it's very, very aggressive in terms of uh, how I speak to myself. Because my standards for myself, I've raised to levels that I've never been able to be at before. But I think what that's also done is it's um, made me less self, less aware of my impact around me. And that, in yeah. a voice, I mean, save, save me from myself, for God's sake. If you recite back, literally, the terms and the words and the language people use, you can question them on that. And you can pick up on not just what they say, but how they say it. And so that's why it's so important to listen carefully to what the other person is saying as a coach. Now, when you reflect and you know, you're doing it yourself, you have to be careful about how I speak about myself, how I describe like that. You know what I mean? It's easy to point out with, with other people. But when it comes to communication, I always say that the very first skill is listening skill. The second skill is questioning. Well, the second and third is questioning, but also how one speaks about themselves. Not forget about what you're saying to someone else, but how you speak about yourself. And so by using that, you can question, um, what do you mean by when you when you said this? Well, I didn't quite mean it like that. Oh, okay, so, so what did you mean? And it gets really interesting, of course, when you cross cultures, because you have to be aware of what certain words mean. They mean something completely different in in different demographics, different age groups, even. Well, the kids say this today. Uh, I love that because it, it's very enlightening. <laughs> <laughs> it's another language. So, Johan, talk to me then about uh, scripting. How do you help people to recognize and adjust their scripting so it serves them and the people they serve better? This is a very very, very important part of all the work. I mean, at the end of the day, our word is everything. You know, I think the first line in the Bible is, first there was the word. So our word is everything. And the first, the most important thing, the most abundant amount of talk we'll ever do is to ourselves. And if that isn't aligned with a greater self or a true self or a powerful self or um, our aware self, whatever you want to call it, then we're in trouble because, as you said earlier on, Marcus, we're lying to ourselves all the time. And so there's no integrity. So how can you possibly be expecting integrity and honesty from other people if you're doing it yourself all the time? That's very, very difficult because we're lazy with our own minds and we've become so used to lying to ourselves, we don't even recognize it as a lie anymore. So the one thing I'm very insistent upon uh, in my work with myself is that I cause people to wake up to what they're actually saying to themselves. So right from the beginning, there'll be exercises that they will do to become aware of what their mind is doing. I get them to separate themselves from their minds. Their mind is is there to serve them. And they've got to be able to observe. They need a supervisor, if you like, for the mind, a witness of what the mind is doing. Go on, Marcus. About what a superb journaling question. What lies have I told myself today? 
Exactly. Absolutely right. What lies have I told myself? And what lies might I have told myself? Because I don't even hear it anymore. <laughs> so, dive in on this because I, I suspect. No, I, I, no, no I, that's exactly it. Um, the biggest section of lies in any bookstore is the autobiography section. <laughs> Well, and history. And because it's, it, you know, it's, it is, it's the lies that you, you do tell yourself, but, but also you have to look at that in a forgiving way because we, we have told, we have told ourselves these things to either explain what has happened previously. And so we move forward, but I use the term compassionately ruthless. We, we have to be compassionately ruthless with yeah. how we speak to ourselves, but taking that time and particularly first thing in the morning, using that inner voice to help us navigate how we're going to navigate the day becomes really, really important. And you have to find the balance. It's very gentle balance because you can very easily influence yourself in an overly optimistic, arrogant way or in an, op- in an opposite, negative, depressing way if you don't view it in with, if you don't view it with balance. Because when you're dealing with, particularly with high performers, who early in their career particularly have been driven by self-criticism and it has served them exceptionally well, you can break them very, very easily. I use a visualization of walking down a white corridor at the beginning and the end of the process just to allow yourself view and speak to yourself with balance. Otherwise, you'll walk out in a dark mood or you'll walk out in you know a disney mood and you can't do either you have to look at them carefully and so that becomes that's a very very important particularly with high performers high achievers now i was about to say it's all about the nature of the mind and we don't realize what has happened to our mind and you talk about earlier on about scripting early conditioning is what i refer to the most with all of that is we as children we are sponges and up to the age of four five six we're a total sponge and we absorb everything around us. And if a lot of that stuff is limiting or false, we'll absorb it because the mind makes no difference between what is good or what is bad or what is true to sponge. It just takes it all in. And then we become the sum total of all those seeds that are in there and they grow. But we don't realize it as we're children. But at some point, we start to realize that something might be wrong and a child will then put that on themselves. So let's say something really bad happened. If, let's say the parents got divorced. How many children blame themselves, young children blame themselves or teenagers blame themselves for parents' divorce? And so they say, I'm evil, I'm... So there's a false attack. False. All these false, all these false beliefs, all these false statements that they say about themselves, and that becomes a filter that everything, all their thoughts go through, and then they take that as, they define that that is them. So they start to relate to themselves as the sum total of all that conditioning, all those beliefs. But that's not the true them. That is if you like, a hijack to them. What I seek people I work with to understand is that, if you like, there's two people inside them. There's the authentic original person and there's the one that got hijacked. And if they keep feeding and empowering the hijacked one, they'll keep getting those results, which might be very good results. You might win medals, you might get Ferraris, you might get all this stuff, but you will never be fulfilled. Interestingly enough, what you've described in my head uh, sounds to me like being ruthlessly compassionate to yourself. An interesting juxtaposition to being compassionately ruthless. So looking at everything in micro detail, but not being an arse about it. 
Well, you've got to get past the embarrassment of being a human being first and foremost. Yeah. It's a messy business, let's face it. It's seriously <laughs> messy. You've got to get the awareness, sufficiently awareness, however you achieve that, and there's ways of the, to get past that. Then you realize it's a mess. Now, who am I going to be in the matter of it's a mess? Right? And actually, our potential as humans is phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. We are so well equipped. We are sons or daughters of the infinite universe with all that magic flowing through us. And what do we do with it? Well, we do with it, for the most, what we've been conditioned to do with it, which is not always a pretty picture. So we've got to get past that. So that's, if you like, the first awakening is realizing who I am is actually not who I could be or, who, who, or what my potential has me possibly be. It's all this stuff that has formed me. Formed me. So keep the best, ditch the rest, and then start a new relationship. So when people say... Um, I'm not happy with my life. I say, who is I and what does my mean? Who is the my? So when you say, I'm not happy, who is the I you're referring to? Johan's not happy. Who is, who is that Johan? Because the ultimate Johan would never say that. How can you not be happy? How can you not be powerful? How can you not be confident with this incredible brain, this incredible life force that's flowing through you, the incredible abundant universe we're in? How can you not be powerful and happy with that? Well, if you no longer relate to that part of you, but you're relating to the squeezed, limited. It's a bit like you're a fish from the, from the abundant ocean, a wave, a tragedy, a trauma, whatever, washed you over onto the beach, and then you started living in this pool, this uh, pond, puddle. the water yeah. stagnating, a puddle. And you're dying in there, but now you become the king of that puddle, and you seek to be the king and to get all the riches in that puddle. But you've forgotten that you come from the abundant, abundant um, ocean where everything and anything is possible. So right. We limit ourselves. So the idea, the work is to get them back in the ocean and not to come back into the puddle. And so this then feeds into the importance of understanding the value of constraint, but not limiting belief. The discipline of constraint, the ability to structure uh, your use of time within the same 24 hours everyone else has will be the key differentiator here. So as Fergus was talking and as you were talking, it struck me the importance of the you allying yourself with your calendar and using the calendar to discipline the time that you dedicate to very specific tasks. In our last call, Fergus, we talked about the importance of working on the fundamentals consistently and how the best performers are constantly practicing. I just interviewed fabulous magician Michael Vincent and he's constantly practicing every single one of the fundamentals. Uh, and this is a guy who, since 1991, has been at the top of his game. And he's worked with the greatest magicians in the world. Now, his attention to that discipline, the rigor, and structure is so key. And what I would love to uh, explore is how do you give people who are unstructured and undisciplined in their nature enough frameworks so that they feel confident that and certain that they're going to be able to get their outcome. Because I think a lot of people are wandering generalities instead of meaningful specifics. So yeah, let's start with you on this one. Quick wins. Give them a little structure. Structure. Yeah, you want success, you need structure. Whatever that structure is right for your for your success. You need structure. No structure, forget it. I mean, as you said, you need a channel to contain things to get for them to fill, you know, if you don't, a bucket, you fill a bucket, the bucket becomes abundant because there's a constraint to hold it. Um, a cup, a cup is only useful because of the emptiness in it and the emptiness is created by constraint. So you can fill it up. 
So you need Sorry. that constraint. Most people don't. Their diary or the calendar is all over the place. Their energy is all over the place. Their mind is all over the place. And without consistent application of focus and, and activity, you're not going to build much. Anyone who, who's ever done anything Excellent. knows that. So it's all wins. Give them a small, easy structure, get them a win, and they start to believe in structure then, and then take it from there. That's so, so good. Um, can you build on that? You want to remind people of how the fundamentals got them success. And exactly like Johan says, give them small wins. And I, I always use the analogy of, you know, when you watch sport, for example, or you watch a highlight reel, you see perhaps exceptional performances. But what you have to remind people of is that the exceptional performance is built on a lot of very, very basic fundamentals that have been practiced and refined. And when you see a highlight reel, you're just seeing an outcome, but you don't see all of the hours and hours and hours of basic fundamentals. And one of the really important things, and I have so many examples I use with people, is telling stories of going back to preseason and seeing great athletes or great players just practicing fundamentals. And in some cases, actually, when you see them in the you know, away from the bright lights and away from everything else, you see them making mistakes. You see a ton of mistakes and you, like, you see them, but they're working on the basics. And I think that's something that sometimes as we go along in our career, we are scared to make mistakes. We're scared to go back to the basics and refine them and work on them again. And that's it's something that I definitely... Even in my own career, I've forgotten it, and I had to go back to start again and and remind myself. And there have been one or two beautiful moments where you're working on something quietly, early in the morning, or long away from everybody else, and you're working on it. And you remember what it was like when you started your career and you started doing these things again. Um, back to what Johan was speaking about earlier. One of the the very first questions is. One of the most fundamental questions is like, who am I? And it's an old, it's a cliche, right? Like, I mean, it is a cliche. And people, when you say to somebody, oh, who are you? And who am I? You know, people will roll their eyes. But that is the starting point. Like, who are you? Like, how do you think? What, do, what are you good at? What do you, like, pairing back to that, that has to be the starting point. And then the second question is, okay, so why are you here? Or your purpose, which we touched on briefly, like, I mean, Okay, this is who you are. This is what you're good at. And that's a wonderfully beautiful thing because it gives people a balance and it helps them recognize what they're really good at. And then also, okay, what are the other, they're not weaknesses, they're areas of opportunity. What are the other areas of opportunity that we can start to develop? That's a beautiful moment. And again, like I said, if you're working with a leader or a high performer, somebody who's good, they have all the pieces. All you're going okay. to do is help them put them together in a slightly better way. I'm going to push back a little because my experience is when I work on my genuine weaknesses, my strengths get diminished and my weaknesses generally don't improve. I'm better finding people whose strengths make my weaknesses irrelevant and vice versa. The areas that I'm ignorant of, and I don't as yet know whether or not they're a strength or a weakness, I think those are better development areas than my weaknesses. But my best development areas are my strengths. If I can build on what I already have, as long as I don't get too much of a good thing. You have strengths, and those are the things that you are good at, and those are things you don't want to lose. 
and and that's critical. Your areas of opportunity, you're never going to, you may not turn them in. I don't want to say never. You may not turn them into a strength, but you want to be able to recognize them first and foremost and have an awareness of them. Mm. And then you cert, there is a limiting, there is a, a functional minimum that you must have. So first is having the awareness of what they are. And that's done through reflection. And then you want to make sure that they don't fall below a certain point. So whether, for example, it might be communication, empathy, whatever the the area is, if it falls below a certain point, you're really going to struggle. They may never become a strength, but you want to be able to continue to be aware of them and to develop them. And that's what we're looking for. Or you can marry them. Well... Yeah, you or you can, or, 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 again, can of, co- of, yeah. of, of course, yeah, and actually, and or or again, yeah, in a business sense, you you would hire them. However, however, you can't fall into the trap. Then this is where if you don't have awareness, I think it was it was Rumsfeld, yeah, but you don't know, you don't know. But what you you don't want to fall into the trap of just hiring and considering. I don't need to worry about that. I, that's abdicating, and that's not that's, good. That is abdicating. Correct. Absolutely. Sorry, yeah, please yeah. come in. Two thoughts. First of all, regarding what, what you were saying earlier on about, well, the quote that came to my mind was Bruce Lee once said, I don't fear the guy who knows 10,000 kicks. I fear the guy who knows <laughs> one kick and has practiced it 10,000 times. That, that was the title for our podcast, wasn't it? <laughs> was it? I think it was. Yeah, was it? And, uh, and so, so, so that right there is indicative that uh, you've got to put the basics in place. And anyone who has, who has risen to great heights in anything has mastered the basics. And what I find with new leaders or unseasoned leaders and also unseasoned coaches is that they're with a client who they look up to because they're in awe of, uh, you know, they're successful, et cetera. And they say, for instance, uh, a leader, I'm not going to go through time management because obviously you've mastered that. They make assumptions. I say, you've probably mastered time management. We're going to go back to basics to make sure you still got it. Yeah. So or, or, take off yeah, that or, what, or what do you mean by time management? Yeah, well, that'll be the whole conversation, but we're going to revisit some stuff that, that everyone would say, don't teach him, he already knows. Well, we revisit it. You take your black belt off or you put a white belt on and let's see how you really do. And exactly, you'll yeah. learn it from a new perspective. And certainly when they're working with me, if they repeat something, I teach them something they already learned, they're going to be learning it from a new perspective because the context and everything is about context. I call it contextual transformation. The context is different. So they're going to be looking for different opportunities in that learning. In terms of learning, that is a better way to learn because the brain works by making lots and lots of connections. And the way you end up getting it into long-term memory and into muscle memory is by approaching the same problem from multiple different angles, different contexts, different situations, different locations. Um, you know, one of the best uh, bits of advice you can give your kids is study with music on, with music off in different locations in different parts of the house on different seats with with different distractions. So no matter what, as you're learning it, your brain is starting to put it into those different contexts. It's fascinating how much faster you are. To quote another philosopher, little Wayne the rapper, you ain't done it till you've done it in five states, but it's the the same thing. If you can do it once, it doesn't mean that you can do it in another place. You have to learn how to do it in slightly differentiated. Now that is mastery. That is mastery. And it requires discipline and it requires consistency and persistence. So uh, because, because, sorry, well, just one, one note on that, because even though it appears like the same thing, every time you do it in different contexts, it's actually slightly different. Yeah. 
And that's the learning. And this is why things like role play and practice and um, using video to record yourself and replay and get coaching through that, all of these things allow you to experience the moment enough in enough different ways so that when you're faced with an unforeseen or original surprise, then you've got a range of options available to you. So when I'm hiring and when I'm uh, working with my clients to hire, what I'm looking for is, is the person in front of me familiar with the kind of challenges they're going to face in this job? I don't care whether they've done them in this industry before, and I don't care even whether they've been successful, if I'm being honest. I want them to have thought about the problem multiple different ways and uh, had to face up to these challenges. And that's way more instructive and predictive of whether someone will succeed in the role than whether I can get them to uh, lie about two or three deals that they did. I think it's a testament. In my book, you're not hired until three months in when I've had the time to test you in all different situations and see how you perform when no one's watching and see, see what your default setting is. What's your default setting when no one's watching, when nothing's going on? How do you behave? What are you doing? What do you do with your time? Yeah, Do you drift or are you preparing for some? What do you do? So it's, it's looking from all those different angles. But coming back to weaknesses, and I do call them weaknesses, those weaknesses, I think that you were talking about, you, you frame them a different way. I call them critical weaknesses. In other words, if you don't get this weakness into no longer a weakness, but at least no longer a critical weakness, if it's a critical weakness and you don't fix it one way or another, then it remain a critical weakness and your dream and your aspirations will be dead in the water. So a good example of that was the top golfer I worked with and he hated putting and he was a driven, he's a, he's a top amateur. As a matter of fact, we got him in the Guinness Book of Records. He was a, a top amateur golfer who was stuck at handicap one at 54 years old, never hit zero handicap. I won't go through it. It took me age. I still don't fully understand all the rules and everything in golf, but it doesn't really matter. He does, and that's what matters. Um, but the point is, he was very, very good already, but he was stuck. And he was stuck because he's impatient and uh, kind of a, a driven type of guy, um, businessman, entrepreneur, property developer. And uh, he was stuck and impatient and hated putting. So he'd overcompensate with everything else. He could whack it up ball across the greens. You know? He'd overcompensate, but nevertheless, at the end, came to putting, he made silly mistakes and he'd come second or third right, and stuck at one handicap. Now, most people his age would be absolutely delighted to be at one handicap, but he had aspirations to get beyond it. So we worked together and we realized that what was holding him back, first and foremost, is he wasn't present sufficiently on the golf course, too many business problems. So with him for one year, helped him restructure his whole business. Then it gave him three to four days to practice golf and he'd show up without any business problems. Other people were handling them. The mind was clear. It was too much worry. Couldn't really be present to golf. Got to clear the mind sufficiently. Then we looked at the putting and we said, this is a critical weakness. And if you don't turn it around, you'll never get past your one handicap. So we've got to turn, despite the fact that you don't like it, you hate doing it, etc. Even in golf, they say, driving is for show, putting is for dough. Yeah? You want to win, you got to learn to putt. So let's get good at putting. Right? And I turned it into a really exciting game because he like, he like, he performs well under pressure. And so I imagined, I said, now, can you see all the cameras, the TV cameras? He said, what TV cameras? I said, can you, can you not? There's just me and him on this in the golf course. Can you not see all the TV cameras? There's 10 of them looking at you right now and you're about to putt. He goes, where? I said, see them in your eye. And I got, I got the pressure up to the degree where he was feeling tightness in his belly. I said, great. That's what will happen on, 
on, on a real day. We've got you in that state. Now, what are you going to do? You're going to listen to all your likes and dislikes about putting, or you're going to follow the training that you've done, because I know you know how to putt. You've had the best training. Right, so effectively what you were doing there was anchoring that peak state. Anchoring that peak state and get him to resort to his training and not to his feelings about or his emotions or his dislikes on life. But you rise to the level of your training. Yeah. You rise to the level of your training and you fall to the level of uh, your commitment. Correct. So he putted them all in and at the end of it, hooray, I still hate fucking, fucking putting. I said, no, but you loved it for 45 seconds and that's all that mattered. (laughs) <laughs> he became a 56 year old he became a um, a national champion in the amateur league and a scratch golfer first time ever in the British Isles at, at that age without having been a scratch golfer before yeah fantastic okay All between, the between the two ears again that that is the battlefield isn't it it's six inches between our ears the sale happens there a performance happens there the transformation or rebellion happens there So what do we have to do? So Fergus, let's bring you in on this. What do we have to do to keep our brains healthy? Because I I think lots of people spend time on their uh, fitness and their body, but I'm not entirely sure there's anywhere near enough time keeping their brains healthy and uh, fit. The old, uh, is it Descartes, uh, separating the mind and body, considering the two are separate. You have to consider the person as a whole And I think people tend to choose to do physical activity, for example, or choose to do mental activity separate without recognizing that everything is is involved in all of those processes. So whether it's taking time to recover and eat or taking time away, you can't, I used to say, spending 20 minutes in a dark room is not going to fix all of the problems, you know, of a week. It has to be a holistic approach to performance or to improving performance. So that means knowing why you're doing certain, certain things, your sleep, your lifestyle, all of those things contribute. Because again, you can try and operate on four hours of sleep, poor diet, and a whole load of things, and then try and meditate. And you're just, you're pouring water into a bucket with three or four holes rather than fixing the holes. Okay. And Johan, your thoughts in terms of keeping uh, the mind healthy? Well, brain you said health. the brain earlier on. Now you yeah, say the brain. Mind. Those are two different things. No, no, yeah. no, no the brain you're is, right. The brain, 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 brain. Yeah, the brain is a physical organ, and that needs just like every other organ in your body. It needs it needs five the five principles: proper uh, breathing, proper hydration, proper food, rest and exercise, and then, like every other organ in the in the body, peace of mind. So that's where the mind and the brain. Now, the mind is the data, if you like, that's floating around, or the energy in the brain. And those obviously are inseparable until you die. Then the brain's going to rot away and the mind does whatever it does, spirit, whatever. What, you know, that's another conversation for another day. The point is, if you don't have a healthy mind, a healthy brain rather, then the mind is not going to be all that sharp. So we really need to take care of our brain as an organ. And so nutrition and all those other things I mentioned are very important there and exercise. Um, but then also the mind. So there's exercises that you can do on your brain that strengthen the mind. So for instance, the greatest thing you, I think one can do for one's mind is meditation. It's the ultimate medication for the mind that gets a, a brain operating at a different frequency, a higher frequency, alpha, theta brain waves. When we're in alpha, theta brain waves, our awareness increases. Uh, um, that gap that I was talking about, maybe it was in the green room where we talk about the, the gap that a circumstance occurs and then we automatically react if we don't have a gap. But if we have a gap in our thinking, 
a pause, then a circumstance arises and then we can decide and or choose a response based on all sorts of factors, including our training. And that's where we start, start to have a bit more freedom in our life because we don't, we're not automatically hooked by everything that occurs. And most people are hooked. They, they, they're not really in control of what goes on. Their condition is in control. Something happens and they always have the same response. And that's why they, their lives are less than harmonious. Okay. So, yeah, there's the brain and the mind. And, of course, there's exercise okay. and, and, and support for both. We need to wrap up now. So let's just have one final thought. If there was one thing that you would hope that people who've listened today take away and start to implement or start to change, what would be the one thing that you would want them to take away? Uh, Fergus? Start with truly understanding who who you are. That's where the, the journey starts. And do it with do it with compassion. Many, like I say, very driven high performers will be very, very ruthless with themselves and can be very hard on themselves. And so start with who you are truly. And and that's the that, that's the original starting point. Excellent. And Johan? I suppose kind of not too dissimilar to what you're saying there. I say the first thing to do is to learn to calm down. We learn the mind works best when it's open. We learn best when it's open. In order to be open, it needs to be calm, tranquil. So for learning, a calm mind, a peaceful mind, and for then performing, once you've learned, then pressure. But uh, people, most of us, don't know how to calm our mind down. So we can't truly learn because when the mind is not calm, it shuts down and it rejects any new ideas. So it's getting into that um, state of calm, open mind. I call it dynamic tranquility. We're very aware, but we're, we're tranquil and open. And then, well, that, that uh, speaks to another really interesting uh, observation, which is you cannot influence and judge at the same time. Correct. And if you're judging yourself, you can't possibly influence yourself to change. There's some wonderful stuff in today's session. So both, thank you both for that. I'd love to have you back if you're game. How can people get hold of you, Johan? Well, they can call you. Uh, and get my details from you. I, I'm not uh, you probably, you probably want to delegate that to me. So yeah, magnify. So magnifyyourgreatness.com uh, on there, or you can send me an email at johan at magnifyyourgreatness.com. All in one word. Magnify. And you can call me. Yeah, call me. But I may. Uh, I may. Yeah, you're a busy guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> excellent, and Fergus. Yeah, just. Call Marcus, uh, email Marcus. Uh, <laughs> so you you just, do realize my 30% agency fee. Hey, t- t- Marcus, you're, you're, you're worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Jennifer Aniston both. It must be the hair, shit. <laughs> I think... I think- I think I'm following. We spoke about this before, Marcus, in the green room the last time. I think I'm following both you and Johan's uh, bar- barbering well, advice. None of us are going to be getting a call from L'Oreal. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So just yeah, go to my my website, FergusConley.com. Excellent. And uh, both of them are on LinkedIn. And they are bloody good. So get them in. If you need help and you want someone who's going to kick your ass, but do so with your own, with your best interests at heart and will certainly help you get the results if you put you pull your finger out, then both of them are fantastic. And I cannot recommend them highly enough. In the meantime, 
Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And I'm launching a couple of new programs, Hiring Winners. So how do you make sure that you don't end up with James Bean when you meant to get James Bond? And successful selling. It's practical stuff that will get you to sell more, more often for less effort. And the beauty is you'll learn in many different contexts. So enough of my waffle. Uh, in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.